I'm Felina Jean, and this is Black Broads Abroad. I'm an international woman of leisure who said peace out to the United States in 2011, and I have not looked back except at this ass, honey. Since then, I've lived on four continents with travel to over 40 countries. Along my journey, I've come to know some very compelling black women from all over the world who also said fuck you to their comfort zones. I created this podcast to inspire Black women in the diaspora to take risks and live their very best lives. Tiffany Clark is a retired disabled war veteran turned Ya Ajiman Apambor Oheneyere, materialized her goal of leaving the United States in 2019. Born and raised in Southern California, she joined the Army at the age of 18 where she quickly found herself in a war zone in 2003 at the tender age of 19. Having realized the true motives of the war and what America was all about, as well as suffering injury and disease, she devised a plan to live the rest of her life doing as she pleased and working for no one ever again. Tiffany found a way to retire at the age of 31 with a pension and benefits for the rest of her life. During the time she spent decompressing from the stresses of military life, the overt and covert racism, the physical demands and constant stress, she realized that America had taken her youth and the most of her, but she wanted to move to the motherland and give the best of her. She pulled her children out of their successful acting careers, left therapy, moved to Hawaii for two years and went to university. However, she could not settle and knew she had to get out. Having visited Ghana in November of 2018, she met her king, literally, built her first home, packed herself and her children up, and moved in April of 2019. Once caught a nigger while in Iraq fighting for a country that did not want her, risking her life for a lie, passed up for promotions, overworked, and underappreciated, she is now called Queen Nana Yere. She has a name with a meaning. She lives a life of doing as she pleases, when she pleases. She has help readily available. She is building another home of her 12-year-old son's design, building a school and building a community, amongst other things. Tiffany has a lot of goals that she will reach while she is in Ghana. Her main one was true freedom. She is close to realizing that. Her next are building a bridge between the diaspora and the continent, writing a few books, and helping locals get back to self-sufficiency. Welcome, Tiffany, or should I say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's the, yeah, it's okay. fine. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so I have to give a bit of backstory about how we even know each other. We are <laughs> way back. <laughs> oh, girl, way back. We go back at least twenty years. Yeah. Minimally. Minimal, Minimally. Yeah. More than that, yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah. way longer than that. Elementary school, Terra Hills. Oh shit, we go back like thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we go back like thirty years. It's so crazy because, um, like you know, we're childhood friends. I think out of after after high school, like junior or senior year of high school, we kind of like. We fell out of contact, but the advent of social media, we've been able to like kind of keep up with each other's life on the periphery. Um, But I see that you have moved to Ghana. I saw your big move take place last year. And like, I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm so excited that you're still in my orbit for one. And I'm very excited to do this interview um, with you today. Look at God, 30 years ago, we meet (laughs) and somehow we serendipitously I'm in South Africa, you're in West Africa and Ghana. God is funny. So yes, yeah. my first question, we're obviously in the middle of a very real pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also amidst all of these Black Lives Matter protests, how all of these things have converged. And I've, I've been like very tuned into the news and Ghana specifically has, um, has really called for African-Americans to come home, even more so than with just, you know, the year of the return last year, but a lot of African countries are like, you know, beckoning Black Americans to come back to the continent. So how are you? How are you in Ghana? Like, what's going on there now? 
What's the climate I like? Great in Ghana. Like honestly, bad as this may sound, like I, if I don't want to be um, have my spirit brought down by any of this, I don't have to. You know, like. Mm. I go look for information now versus when I was in America, like you couldn't avoid it. Um, yeah. People here are learning. Um, when I first came here, you know, a lot of the youth, especially, you know, they thought the slave trade was a myth. They thought those things on the coast were actually castles because they don't know about us. So with all this, they're learning more. And one of the things I love the most is that the youth, is eager for information. So when I sit down with some young people and explain to them what we go through, why I moved to Ghana, they can't understand why I don't want to be in America. They all say, oh, take me with you. And then when I'm done talking to them and showing them the reality, they're like, wow, auntie, I don't want to go. Right. So I think a right. lot of the fact we've been here, you know, a lot. Of, there's been, you know, some, some um, trailblazers of us that have been in Ghana for 20, 30, 40 years. And I think now it's kind of like, okay, we're starting to get it. And then with John, George Floyd, I think he was just really a conduit for the world to this. That's God, in my opinion. Like, because it's not like it's the yeah. first time. What happened to Eric Garner? Yeah. I can't breathe. He said the same thing. And he died the same way. It wasn't a knee. It was a, a chokehold. But this is, this is God. It, the whole world was paying attention. Absolutely. In terms of the pandemic, are you guys still on lockdown have things been lifted uh, no so we you know lockdown lasted a few weeks and then it went into you know being in this shithole country to where we got everywhere you go you got to wash hands i'm saying shithole country facetiously you know right you go, it's... your president's uh colloquialism <laughs> <You're not. laughs> that's your president i don't claim that man. <laughs> um you know, everywhere you go, you have to wear a mask. No mask, no entry. To include taxis. If the police are out there, they're paying attention. If you're in a taxi with no mask, they're pulling you out that taxi. Um, everywhere you go, there's a place for you to wash hands. They ain't letting you in without washing your hands. There's temperature te I, checks at the door. I saw this video, this white lady, obviously an expat, and she wasn't going to the grocery store. I know you know what video I'm talking about. <laughs> and she didn't want to put those sanitizer on her hands. They was like, bitch. <laughs> they probably her ass up out of there. Right out. So, <laughs> so that's good. I'm happy that, like, you know, the provisions are in place. And the numbers are not as, as high. Um, in Africa, fortunately. I, my only concern about uh, Africa at this point is that I don't want us to be the test dummy for Bill mm -hmm. Gates' vaccines. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I'm going to get into the interview. I mentioned in your bio, you grew up in Southern California and you joined the army at 18 and were in the throes of a war zone. And you seem to have had a paradigm shift about being in, engaged in combat for the United States. Um, so it's, uh, was it like a moral dilemma about your service? And can you explain what brought up about this, what brought upon this shift of consciousness? Yes, yeah, so, you know, I was there in the beginning of the war. I landed, we were in, I was in Kuwait in March of 2003, getting ready to go push into Baghdad. And when we left Kuwait, crossed that border, and the southern border, the people were cheering. There was American flags. People were happy we were there. I think they believed we were really there to fight for their, for their, um, I said their freedom. But as we got further into closer to Baghdad, I realized, you no, know, mind you, let me back up a bit. I didn't have any plates in my vest. So if they were, it, it was not a bulletproof vest by any means. It was a flak vest meant to only protect against shrapnel. Wait, I had no water. You were on the, wait, you were like frontline combat without a bulletproof vest? Yes. What? Yes. The, the, the country was not prepared to send us to war. This was not about no weapons of mass destruction. There was no preparation. Um, we had no water that was cold to drink. The water was as hot as coffee. We literally used to pour, take a sock, wet a sock, hang it from uh, the, the mirror of our Humvee, 
and dry so that the air can cool the water bottle down enough to drink because the water was hot as coffee. Wow. I had no radios in my vehicle. But as I'm pushing forward, I realized that we've paid people to protect the oil lines. So use no money to... Yes, the oil lines were protected from day one. Wow. So that's what you guys are, in, in essence, out there doing. Yeah. And... You know, we was, there was never any briefings about weapons of mass destruction. And you would think in 2003, I'm in a military police unit. We're here basically disarming the population. That's all we were doing is finding weapons and taking weapons away. There was never a briefing about weapons of mass destruction. Wow. That's how you know it's pure, unadulterated bullshit. Because obviously, if, if that was the threat, you would brief your frontline soldiers, right? Right. Oh my goodness. And I'm watching as people go from cheering for us, thinking we're coming to liberate them, to attacking us. And I realized that that's because I'm hearing these white guys especially talk about kill them all, they're just Iraqis. And in my mind, I'm like, man, not too long ago, you say kill them all, they're just niggers. Right. And these are like military officials that are using this kind of language. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. My goodness. We don't fight for freedom. No. Wow. First, let me say thank you for your service. Thank you. Um, you. Yeah. Thank you for your service. So, okay. You've done... um, um, this is actually a time right now where Black people are really amplifying their voices about microaggressions, macroaggressions, overt racism, systemic racism, and just the overall impact of white supremacy in our personal and professional lives. Can you elaborate some more on the encounters that you had while serving in the U.S. Army? Oh, yes. I've dealt with overt and covert. The biggest being when I was in Iraq, I had a a high-ranking officer um, literally called me a nigger because essentially mm. they had a briefing room and, you know, the good old boys like to go out there with their spit bottles from chewing and such. And at the time, I was one of the lowest ranking in the office. So, yes, when it comes to sweeping and cleaning up the area, you know, papers and stuff like that, cleaning off the desk, that's my job. Got it. But I refuse to pick up anybody's spit bottles. Mm-hmm. That's nasty. I'm not doing that. I'm not fetching your coffee. I'm not a maid. So right. when it came down to me not willing to do certain things, he got mad. He went in the briefing room because I didn't pick up spit bottles and got mad and started hitting him. Damn nigger. Mm. I said, oh, really, sir? But of course, especially in the military police corps, it's a bunch of good old boys. You know, you go out to the, to the, the units and you look out front and it's nothing but good old redneck trucks as the command mm. staff. So who do you go to at that point? Nobody. Right. Wow. It's so insidious and it infiltrates every professional, uh, you know, category. I I've obviously was not on the front lines of combat, but I think every Black person has a situation where they've encountered, like, overt. Because yes. even covert is overt. Because you know what yes. the fuck you're doing. So, right. <laughs> yeah. It's only overt. They think that we don't, they think we're stupid. And then, of course, you know, I had to literally still, I, I literally, you know what it is. I told officers to the face. I told them, just because you're educated doesn't make you smart. I'm the smart one in this situation. Wow. And they didn't want to let me promote sergeant. Now, mind you, everybody came to me for help. I was a subject matter expert when it came to everything. I changed my job to HR, as a matter of fact. When I got out, left Iraq, I actually got out for a little while and went back in. Because I realized when I got back from Iraq, when we were leaving, I got really sick. Mm. And I know what was wrong with me. I just know I was walking down the street one day in Kuwait, getting ready to leave. And I was just overcome with pain. And I couldn't get up. Mm. I was on the ground. So I get back and they say, you know, I go to a rheumatologist. They look at my results and the lady says, I'll be back. And she left the room. She comes back in. She comes back in and she's like, oh, you have fibromyalgia. I didn't know what the hell that was. Find some kind of bush. Mm. So I was like, okay. So Mm. I get out. 
but as I get out, I do more research on fibromyalgia. I'm like, I don't have just, if I do, it's not just fibromyalgia. I think I have lupus. Mm. So at this point, there was no Obamacare or nothing like that. I'm like, I can't get life insurance. I can't get health insurance. My, 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 my health is up and down. Basically, I can't get a job. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go back in. And I ain't getting out until you retire me because you should never let me out the first time. So I go back in, but instead of going back into the normal active duty army, I go into where I'm active duty for the reserve center. So they come in one week in the month, but there's a small staff that's there every day active duty. That's what I did. So I went to go see civilian doctors instead of military doctors. So I finally get a diagnosis. I do have lupus, but I kept wow. that tucked away. I didn't tell the military this at the point because I'm like, I need to, I need to build up my time in so my, at least my retirement money will be higher. Right. Um, but the stress, I couldn't deal. Like I was in and out of the hospital. I was having heart problems. I was having so many like mental mm -hmm. cognition problems. And so. And this is at what age? This is all going on in my late 20s until I hit to the point in my 30s, my first turn 30, I'm like, I can't deal with this. Wow. So I changed my job to HR because I wanted to basically, I needed to know the regulations. I needed to know how to, how to guide my own career. Again, oh, being well, you a smart one. Black <laughs> <laughs> women are the smartest people I know, honey. Period. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Okay, so you switched your job to HR, you learned the strategy, then what? I am getting sick, and I also see a huge leadership problem in the military to where I wouldn't kick young soldiers out for not coming to work. And so they tried to, they had a target on my back, basically. Basically, like, who does nigger think she is? Right. And they tried to get the general to get on me, but the general loved me. I'm like, sir, there's a leadership problem. In the military, we have suicide problems. People aren't showing up. If they're sick, no one knows. They could be dead and their, their leaders aren't looking after them. This is the military, it should be soldiers first. So he looked at me kind of shocked. He's like, you know, at this point, let me back up. I didn't, they didn't want to promote me. So of course, being HR, I figured out how to make things work. So I literally promoted myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god this is a tiffany that i've known for 30 years yeah <laughs> one day they come to work and i'm sergeant clark <laughs> like that are you serious yes i was doing the work like that's the thing is like as you know as a black woman especially we got to be three times better than everybody else Absolutely. So it's like, I'm working my ass off. I'm keeping things afloat. Essentially, I'm running this unit like I'm the commander. Mm -hmm. And y'all don't want to promote the sergeant? You must be crazy. Mm. These young reserve soldiers who've been in for a couple of years, you know, they come in and they promote fast. And I told them, some of them, you know, my boots have more time in service than you do. Like, don't get it twisted. I'm like, don't confuse your rank with my authority. Mm. I run your career. I am the HR. So, you know, I got tired of trying to do things the right way. So I'm like, I'm going to take my career in my own hands. <laughs> That's my job. Um, so I promote. So the, the general was like, Sergeant Clark, who are you? And I was like, well, sir, I believe in taking care of soldiers. That's my job as a leader. So he said, you know, you're the best HR in this whole brigade. Now, I mean, there's just thousands and thousands of people he's talking about. He said, well, if you ever need anything, you have my, you have my permission to, meet, to, to talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. He's like, are you staying in? I said, no, sir. I have medical problems and the military which is going to put me out. He's like, I'd rather have you at 30% than not at all. So mm. I put that, little, put that little nugget in my pocket. So at this point, my unit's really on my back. Like, they're really trying to kick me out dishonorably. So, you know, I have friends in high places at HR. So next thing they know, I had orders to leave, to go to a different duty station. 
So I leave and go to Riverside. I'm in Riverside at this point because also my children are now acting. You know, my son was on the young and the rest and stuff like that. So I need to stay close to Southern California. So I, I go to Riverside and this is even worse. So at this point, I was like, yeah, no, I can't. So I started preparing mm. my packet to get, you know, I, I finally let the military know. But at this point, they didn't know I had lupus. I kept my records to myself. So I literally planned it to the point where I would get medically retired. Mm. But before that, I didn't go to work for a whole year. So the same way I told the general in my last unit is that leadership doesn't follow up with soldiers. They don't care. They care about numbers, not people. And if you take care of the people, the numbers take care of themselves. Mm. And so I was really, I knew at this point the general had changed over to the same unit that I had changed over to. So I was getting sick. Nobody cared. No one checked up. So I literally did not show up to work for a full year. And finally, when it was discovered, they were like, who is Sergeant Clark? Why has she not been here? So they tried to put the whole onus on me. So, <laughs> what that so, friend? <laughs> <laughs> so I I emailed the general at this point. I'm like, sir, this is Sergeant Clark from So So. If you recall what I was telling you about leadership, I'm like, literally, I'm an active duty full time soldier, and I have not been to work for a year. And I said, why? Because my health has taken a turn for the worse. The stress of the unit is too much, you know, and I said, now they're trying to come after me because of their lack of leadership. So instead of them getting me in trouble, I'm retired and they got in trouble. <laughs> you, you retired, collected a coin, child. Okay. <laughs> so this, this brings me um, to my next question because uh, you've done something remarkable in that you found a way to retire at 31. How did mm-hmm. you, how did that happen? Okay, and what have you done with the freedom of time that you've gained as a result? Yeah, it was just I have real problems medically, but I use it to my advantage. Because you know, I don't know if you remember, my mom died when we I were remember. Yeah, yeah. When we were in high school. And, yeah. yeah, and so you know that was all stress related. So I'm like, I ain't letting nobody stress me out to that point. I don't care who you are, you gotta go. So at that point, the military was the biggest stress in my life, and it was literally killing. I feel like I was dying. Like, I really felt like I was dying. Mm-hmm. So I medically retired, um, and then I got 100% disability from the VA. So I collect a VA disability check and a retirement check from the military. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm here for it. I mean, you earned it. It's, you know, it's not really a laughing matter, but I'm happy that, uh, what was your mom? What's your mom's name, Diane? Yes. Diane. Yes, Miss Diane was <laughs> she was in there in the midst, honey, helping you strategize that whole thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, not my baby. Not my baby. So I'm glad I'm glad that you were able to finesse the system to a degree, but you earned it. It was well earned. Yes. I'm glad that you employed strategy to get what was owed to you. Mm-hmm. So, so they weren't gonna okay. give it to me. They were they weren't gonna they were like they they were letting me die than to pay me. You know what I mean? I'm like, nah, not me. Yeah, I mean, my shit was not even on your level. I mean, just the, just the, just how insipid racism was for me. Um, I moved 13,000 kilometers away from home um, and never worked with that many white folks in my life. And uh, I mean, and I'm an educator, you know, so obviously I was not on the front lines of combat, but I think, you know, I bridled my tongue for a good three and a half almost four years and that ain't you. you know girl i stacked i stacked them coins i had a little bit of fuck you money and i told all them crackers fuck you by the end of my term of my time there I was like i'm not doing this i'm not doing it i mean i didn't say fuck you i did it professionally but it was just like line them up i just let that uzi spray uh i probably would have employed a bit more strategy <laughs> before I did that but you know I had a little bit of coin to uh sustain myself but kudos to you you a whole retired woman how old are we 36 you 37 or 36 I'm 37 I okay. just turned 37 last month yeah okay so okay um fast forward you went on a trip to Ghana in 2018 before resettling there permanently. Um, and before that, you were in Hawaii with your children. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that okay. was my retirement move. I made the military move me there. <laughs> oh, okay. That's girl, girl. They... <laughs> <laughs> so 
So they they um they foot they foot the bill for that too. For yeah, they move me there. Yeah, they move my stuff. Everything. All I had to do is get on the plane. They pay for the plane ticket. My moving moving up my stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I went to school for two years at uh, Hawaii Pacific University, and I did that mostly because you know Hawaii is expensive as hell. So yeah, I went to school because the VA paid my rent. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my girl. This is this is a lick if I ever heard what. <laughs> it's like a lick on top of a lick on top of a lick. What else? I, what else? I call it what I else? call it reparations. And that's the amen. <laughs> yeah, and I filed exactly. taxes and I ain't, I ain't had I ain't worked in years. I filed taxes and get a return. You know what? And you in Ghana right now. So that's geo arbitrage. That retirement money multiplying like <laughs> A whole bunch of time. Oh my goodness. Okay, so uh, you did. You you went on the trip to Ghana in 2018. What caused that trip? Was it just like a vacation? No, you know what? It's when I was in Hawaii. It was. Uh, it was Hawaii is beautiful, and the Hawaiian people like they look at me. They call me sister. They give me the locals discount. Like, but I still did not feel settled and at home i was very like um anxious and depressed still and it was actually my japanese therapist so let me back up i spent four months in inpatient therapy for ptsd mm. before i moved to hawaii and mm. so i made a point to continue with therapy when I was, you know, in Hawaii, when I was in school. And my therapist noticed a difference in me. When I first got to Hawaii, I was like, yes, I'm in Hawaii. I'm in paradise. Look at these beautiful oceans. I was scuba diving. Like, I was enjoying life. And this, when all this stuff started hitting with, with the first wave, the Trayvon Martin, the, mm. the Rice, the Eric Gardner. And it was just really tearing up me, tearing me up. Like, just... I was becoming depressed and mm. I didn't really become aware, you know, I guess also because my family, you know, I'm second generation American. So the issues that have been plaguing America for a long time were never really talked about in my home. Um, so I started realizing all this stuff. Where's your family mom. from? Bahamas. That's right. Yeah, my grandfather That's was a right. illegal immigrant from the Bahamas. I didn't know until he died that a man was here illegally for all them years. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, but funny. My, my Japanese therapist, she said, Tiffany, she's like, I've known you for a couple of years now. She's like, and I see a big change in you. She said, but I am struggling to grapple with going what's going on with Black America. She said, I can only imagine you and what's going on with you. She's like, I think that's what's affecting you. Hmm. And I thought about it. I said, you know, I think you're right. That makes sense. So I had three or four different people. My academic advisor, my therapist at school, and the therapist I saw outside of school, and one of my favorite teachers. Basically, they all could say the same thing in different ways. My academic advisor said it the most plain. She's like, you know, I have an advanced degree. She's like, and I'm in this school with a bunch of people with PhDs. She's like, but I can tell you, Tiffany, you're one of the smartest people I know. She said, you don't need this school. She's like, you need to leave and go do what you want to do. You need to educate. You need to write. So for a long time while I was in the army, I was looking at Panama because that's like everybody retires to Panama. I was looking at Belize because I don't remember Davis' dad is from Belize. That's right. Yeah. And then David I said, Senior. why? Right. And I'm like, why am I looking at all these middle ground places? Let me go to the motherland. I've always said I want to go. I want to go. So I said, I'm going to change my vocabulary to I'm going to go. I don't want to want to anymore. I'm going to. So I came on a tour with a group that I will not mention because I don't advise anybody to go with this tour group. <laughs> like, tell, tell me, me offline. Tell me okay. offline. <laughs> and so when I came, I felt so at home. Not because that's right, not even really the people per se, but my my spirit felt at home. Mm. I felt like I belonged for the first yeah. time. The first and time. Wow. Yes. Now wait, I can I ask you this question? Have you ever been to the Bahamas? I have not. But I don't do okay. hurricanes. I was in Hawaii when they had that hurricane warning. I said, this ain't for me. I don't do hurricanes. I was just wondering if you would have felt, if you felt similarly at home in the Bahamas as you wouldn't. You know, I haven't but go gone. ahead, continue. Um, so I come on a tour. I come a couple of days earlier than the tour group. And I'm just having the time of my life. Like, you know, I miss independence. So half the time, 
I'm with the tour half the time I'm not. So when I get to Kumasi, I leave the tour group to go look at land that's for sale. And during that time, I didn't know that the land that was for sale, the chief that was, because, you know, chiefs own the land here in Ghana. So I didn't know right. that the chief was going to be there to show us around. So the chief at the time, who is now my husband. <laughs> <laughs> He's showing us around, and I wasn't looking for the man. A lot of women come to Africa looking for a man. I wasn't. I was looking for just peace of mind. You know, I was fine being a single mom on my own with my kids. But there was a strong connection between the two of us. And so the whole time I'm in Kamasi, I wasn't anywhere near that tour group. I was doing my own thing. So when I leave, so I mean, I'm, I'm going around. And but when I went to the the last bath, so there's a there's a river that our ancestors were taken to before they were taken to the slave dungeons and being there really like touched me so I'm down at the, at the river and I have my hands and my feet in the river and I just prayed I said you know whatever you uh, there's a reason why I'm why I'm here there's a reason why Ghana was my first stop mm-hmm. what do you have for me here you know why am I here and then the next day, my now husband, he asked me to marry him. And, you know, I was ludicrous. I've only known you for a few days. What you mean? <laughs> and I, I, was, I was proposed to a few times. I'm, I, I knew at the point, though. And you're divorced as well, so you've been married before. Yes. But I knew at this point, like for a lot of the guys, they see they're 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 raised to believe that Americans are rich. They don't see the difference between African Americans and white people. So right. a lot of the people I could tell were just thirsty, thinking, okay, she's American. But for some reason, with my husband, it is so different. Like I didn't look at him and laugh like I did everybody else. Mm. So he follows me to the next town and we talk about marriage and how this works because I'm his second wife. Wait, second wife concurrently or second wife? So with chieftaincy, in order to be a chief, you have to have a wife. And if you don't have a wife, the family gives you a wife. So his first wife is an arranged marriage. So the way he described it to me basically is like, I have a wife that the family gave me, but I have the right to choose my own. Oh, so wait, so is she in the picture? Because that sounds like you could share responsibility, like blowjobs are jobs. <laughs> so they're like, have to, they're like, you have are, to you, that's funny because you are the only person that looked at it the way I said it. Well, I'm like, shit, I am not the domestic per se wife. I don't, my whole mission in life is not to cook and clean for you. That's pretty much how things work here. Like, the only question she'll have is, what do you want for dinner? Whereas for me, so I'm like, what are we going to eat? Oh, no, no, no. We don't. We, I tried to come here and be the happy family, but she tried to juju me and get me to go away. Um, oh. <laughs> I think in the end, I think she likes me as a person, but she doesn't like the fact that everyone likes me and a lot of this family does not like her. Um, oh. So I think it's, you know, she's in her mid to late 20s. I think it's a jealousy issue. Like, I'm, I was trying to help this girl start a business. Like, I was really trying to be like, I'm not here to steal him from you. Like, he, I knew he was married to you. I'm here to play my part. But she didn't want to. Do they have kids? Yeah, they have two young kids. Because, you know, I had a hysterectomy as well, so I can't have children. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I had a hysterectomy at 25. From fibroids? Yep. And I came here, they're like, oh, we have herbs for that. I was mad. What do you mean there's herbs for that? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a marriage dynamic that possibly wouldn't work for everybody, but I'm glad it works for you. Uh, I mean, men do what they do. It's like, I guess it amounts to, do you want to be lied to or told the truth? Right. But you know what? I can say unequivocally for my husband, it is not about sex. I can say that no, for a fact. Nobody marries somebody for good sex. There's plenty of hoes that never been married. Right. <laughs> but people's conclusion, especially the American mentality is, oh, it's about the sex. And I'm like, well, no, the difference is, is that I'm a visionary and I've noticed at least here in Ghana, there is an information desert. Data is expensive. Most people can't afford to, to be researching because the data is expensive and it's unre- It's not the most reliable either, for at least compared to what we're used to in the States. Um, but I tell him, I'm not your dependent, I'm your partner. And that's something different than what he's used to because if he don't give her money, she don't eat. If he don't provide her a place to oh, live, wow. she don't live. So for we, me, we, it's wow. like, yeah. 
I, I see the dynamic. I was just having this conversation with my homegirl. I'm not going to say her name, <laughs> but we were just having this conversation because there's such a difference in, especially like, you know, we're coming to Africa and we have a certain level of um, education and exposure that, you know, some a lot of the people don't have, the masses don't have. And, you know, she's dealing with a relationship with a, uh, with a Nigerian man. I was like, ooh, girl, keep your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth eye open with that one. But the the point of the story is, you know, he was very accustomed to uh, more traditional women. And, like, women like us, no, we come with our own bag. And so <laughs> there's a partnership as opposed to, like, I'm in this relationship because of a need. No, I'm in this relationship because I want, I want to be, not out exactly. of a particular necessity, right? Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. That homegirl, I'm not going to say her name, but uh, she got her a few husbands, girl. I mean, I'm more <laughs> apt to be some, like, you know, be on some bigamist shit out here, like... <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can do it with a few husbands, girl. Yes. Okay. So it's that, yeah, that bridge though. For like, I'm thinking about writing just on that alone. I've had to do a couple of like uh, counselings with other African American women with Ghanaian men because I'm very open minded and I can see things from multiple perspectives. So I understand that a lot of times what we're dealing with is a is a culture difference. And even though they speak English, it's also a language barrier. My husband's like, oh, I have to learn to cope with you. I'm like, you want to get to cope with me. If you got to cope with me, we don't need to be together. We need to cope. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we need to cope. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But that, that is and it's funny. a language barrier. I was like, oh, babe, you're going to end up being spoiled. He took it offensively, as in like spoiled in a bad way. So it's something simple as those simple things. We use the same words with different meaning. Right. We, spoiled for us has multiple meanings in America is context. He took it mm. offensively. So it's like, if we don't realize those things, then we end up having bigger struggles in relationship. And unfortunately, a lot of men in Africa are raised to be, because you're a male, you're a man. And with us in America, oh, male and man are very distinguishable. Don't get me started on that. The chauvinism here is so rampant. And I'm just like, oh, mm. You saw, it was an article that actually that just came out. Abiola, he was the um, CEO of OK Africa. A lot of women just came out about uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. It's about, to be oh, a, yeah. like a, it's about to be a big story that hits. My first, uh, my first marriage was with a Ghanaian man, <clears throat> but he was Afro-European. And so okay. there was, uh, I mean, even though there were some cultural differences, there, there wasn't, I mean, still us having that western connection as well because we were both weird in western environments it was um less so the only african men i've been with have been ghanaian have, have had two ghanaian um love interests and yeah as african men go they're my favorite <laughs> one of my best friends through high school she's from her parents are liberian and her father told her all the time if you're going to marry an african man marry a, a, a ghanaian yeah yeah, I just like, I like their, uh, I like their energy. So, okay, you, you've moved your children. Um, your children have come to Ghana. Fast forward, you moved there last year, 2019, right? Yes, yes. And your children had successful careers as um, budding Hollywood actors and actresses, right? So mm -hmm. how has it been for them transitioning to Ghana and especially transitioning as mixed race children? What has it been like for them? Um, my son is more of an extrovert and he's been able to get out there and make friends and, um, you know, also homeschooled for a long time. So I put them in school. My daughter lasted a term. She's like, I don't like this shit. Take me out. I want to go back to homeschool. And she had a whole dissertation about how it's better to homeschool and getting into college and all kinds of stuff. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, she, she came to me. How I am. If you want to change something, give me the facts. And if you have compelling facts, then you can have what you want. Um, my daughter would prefer to not be here, honestly. Mm-hmm. But she's also, I mean, to educate her birthday. She turned 15 today. Oh, but my God. You have a 15-year-old? Jesus. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Girl, I'm having flashbacks to us sneaking out the house when we were kids. And, like, oh, my gosh, you have a 15-year-old. Yeah. I know she's not doing what we were doing when we were 15. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> At all. 
<laughs> she says all, she says all boys will do is drag her down and slow her down. Oh, she has goals. good. Yeah, she, she's got her head on her shoulders, honey. Right. <laughs> because she's a latchkey kid with supervision, whereas I was just, at least for me, I was just a full-on latchkey kid. Mom know what I was. You know, we was, we was both pure latchkey kids. Right. <laughs> pure <laughs> latchkey kids. We raised ourselves if we going to be right. Yes. Yes, right yes, yes, yes. And I got, you know, we did pretty good for ourselves, you know. We had some trial and errors, but that's how you learn. It, absolutely. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Some Me of the neither. shit you just, the lessons that you learn, just being a latchkey kid and kind of weird how we were, it mitigated a lot of fuck shit as an adult. I'm, yes. I'm grateful. I try and do it now. I say I give them a level of leeway and I sit in the cut and watch. Right. I'm not a helicopter mom by any means, cause I realize the benefit of being a latchkey kid. But yeah, my you know my daughter doesn't like being here, but I I can say at the same time, everywhere we've lived, she didn't like it until we left. She wasn't really happy about Hawaii oh, until we left. Oh. Now she wants to go back. So she's just that brooding teenager. She okay. don't like nothing. And I mean, and she'll be she'll graduate in about three years, and the world will be her oyster. So. And I think, honestly, my, my daughter was just happy with it being the three of us. I think we live, we, you know, we work as a team. When I was in my sickest days, my daughter's the one that, that, that helped me. Mm. Um, so I think in her eyes, subconsciously, she's like, what, what the hell are men good for? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a very good question that I, <laughs> that I sometimes ask myself as well. <laughs> Let me stop. <laughs> At least she's a critical thinker, honey. Yes, I have. I have my my philosophy with raising my children was I want to teach them how to think and not what to think. Yeah, that's really important. Wow. And, you know, so oh, my son, go ahead. He, he does a bit better. You know, he's more social um, and he's more open-minded about new experiences. And ultimately, he's in the end. He's like, Miriam, we're going to be grown and out of the house. You want mom to be lonely? Like, I'm like, thank you, Aiden. Like, exactly. <laughs> thank you. That's interesting because you would think that with your, um, like, sons would be, like, more protective and, like, hovering over you. But that's interesting. I guess my son well, allows me to be more latchkey. My son loves me to be more latchkey. I see. I see. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great experience for them, though. What a great experience. And and they might not understand the, you know, the enormity of the opportunity and this this level of exposure now, but they will. They they definitely All the kids in the world doing all these great things come from places where there's a struggle. I realize in America, like, and especially because they're so, you know, they're mixed. I'm like, you don't have, and I would say mixed. My daughter doesn't look, people don't think she's my child. Wow. No, she's got straight hair. Like you, when she's next to a white person, you can tell she's not white. But when she's with black people, you can tell she ain't black. Right. I have a homegirl uh, in Korea um, who has she has a son, and he's half Korean. And they be thinking she like you know when they're traveling, they be thinking like she's like the nanny and stuff because he does not phenotypically look black. <laughs> he got a little tan or whatever, but he got real real straight hair. Yep. You don't ever think it's her child. That is his daughter. <laughs> so I'm like, but if you don't feel but the I struggle, think that mixed children, uh, mixed race black children that have black mothers fare better, and I dare anybody like, to. Uh, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> to, to contest that thesis. That's just the fact. You know, my <laughs> daughter and my son, they say I did this to them. You broke up a bit. What did you say? My children say all the time, like, I did this to them. I made them. I should have made better choices. I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have made them half white. I'm like, no, but I made you half black. They're like, no, you chose him. <laughs> well. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty deep. My mm-hmm. goodness. Yeah, but yeah, having a black mother, I feel like you don't suffer from like the kind of tragic mulatto kind of scenarios if if you didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for <clears throat> sure. Okay, so um, the most they get, especially when they're like in the village, is stairs. Mm. Um, 
But when it comes to any kind of like quote unquote racism, no, they don't experience that. I try to tell my kids all the time. And it's no different than us in America. People look at you as white. So therefore for them, you're right. Whatever you say is right because you're white. So use that for your advantage. Push the beauty of blackness on these people. You know, like, you know, I, I hate seeing the black women and black men here. Like they, they, they're bleaching and I'm like, yeah. If you're telling them how beautiful their skin is, they're more apt to believe you. If you tell them you wish you had darker skin, they'd be like, ah, really? Why? Mm-hmm. So use it to, 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 to your advantage here. I try to educate. And if you're also educating, they'll take it more from you than they will from me. Mm, that's a good point. That's a really good point. All right. So tell me, what projects are you currently working on in Ghana? I mentioned in your bio that. Um, you're involved in some real estate development projects. Can you tell us more about that? So I have a few things going on. And really, you know, I've been here for a year trying to set myself up as well. So it's, it's, I'm, I have hands a little bit of everything. So I don't know if you saw anywhere in the news, but Ghana's in the process of legalizing the growth of hemp. So my husband's giving me land to start oh, growing hemp in the village. Uh, I'm about to, and I want to make it a woman's business. I have a business partner right now. Um, she already does agriculture stuff. Um, and I'm trying to, we're trying to make it into a woman's business to, to get this hemp farm going. Um, and then we're also going to build a resort, an eco resort on the lake, on Lake Boston Tree. My husband's a chief at the lake. So we're going to build, he's giving me an eco resort. An eco resort. Um, so I want it to be like something that, works well with the environment i don't want to tear down all the trees and um, oh, I, I want to make it ecologically sound and sustainable mm. so we're going to use like bamboo mm. and hemp to build and stuff like that oh, um, that's excellent but i will still we want to, we still want to make it luxury so um so it'll be a luxury eco resort on the lake um and how many acres of land did you say do you have well my husband gave me 15 acres for this purpose um i he's given me plenty of basically whatever land i want my husband gives me um he's given me eight acres for a school to build so i already have an architect working on the school and i'm i'm in contact with the deputy minister of education here because i feel like there needs to be a big shift in education systems here in ghana um they teach through memorization therefore they're not learning they're memorizing um mm-hmm. and i want to get rid get away from this european superiority in education like nah um yeah White supremacy is so ubiquitous. It's like ingrained in curriculums all over the world. It's crazy. I had to fight to decolonize the curriculum every day of my life while working in the middle of the East. (laughs) So it's hard. And they look at you like you're crazy. You know, I was when you and I've known this for a long time, but when you're an independent thinker and you go against the grain, like it's really a truly an uphill battle with no legs. You climbing on your knuckles. It's hard. Climbing on your knuckles. (laughs) So (laughs) what advice what advice do you have for black women, especially those with children who are thinking about moving abroad? If you have the means or you can make the means, do it. It's the best form of education. Even if your kids don't like it in the moment, like you were saying earlier, like hindsight, they'll grow so much from having different life experiences, especially coming from America where it's a huge bubble. And we, I have to work myself to come across and not try and push my American ways on other people. But I think that it helps children grow in ways that you don't even realize it in the moment how much your children grow from these experiences. Um, And especially if you can go somewhere where the American dollar is more valuable and you can make U.S. dollars. Like I, if I wanted to have a driver, I could, but I don't trust folks to be driving me around like that. I guess it's the soldier in me. I know I have people to help with my, around my house to clean. Um, Including your sister wife. (laughs) We don't live together. She's in Kumasi. I'm going to cry right now. Oh, oh, that's good. That's good. But she has has cooked before, but now after she played these games, I don't let her do nothing for me. Mm -mm. I don't blame you. Um, We got Caribbean juju, girl. That's all right. Anyway, go ahead. Right, right. Oh, she thought because I wasn't from Africa, I didn't know. I said, you forget that we are from Africa, and some of these things follow us along. (laughs) 
I ain't stupid. I said, but let me tell you this. You can play juju, but I'm going to beat your ass. That's different. <laughs> Turf for me. <laughs> I have to tell folks all the time, you forget I am trained to kill. And I fight men, too, so don't play with me. Sharing. I, I have people here to help. And it's like we, we're so used to surviving and having to be the hardest workers. When we leave, we can really enjoy our children, enjoy our lives. It's so worth it. I, I advise anybody. You can always go back if need be, if you need to go and do some things. But set yourself up and prepare and plan. And I still think everybody needs to visit the motherland at least once in their life. Absolutely. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned about stepping outside of your comfort zone? To not have a comfort zone. Mm. Comfort mm. really is a state of mind and it's based on expectations. Wow. I, That's a really I, good answer. I think combat actually helped me a lot with this because people struggle here with some things in Ghana. People are surprised that I drive. And I always say, well, you know what? Ain't nobody trying to kill me here. Mm. So when it's all said and done, ain't nobody trying to kill me. I'm comfortable. Mm. Life wow. really is, especially when you leave America, life really is what you make it. Yeah. I think leaving, you know, it increases your bandwidth to enjoy life. Because, you know, the, the rat race, you know, if you set yourself up the right way, you eliminate having to deal with the rat race, you know, mm -hmm. you're able to like just be in the present moment more without, you know, thinking about robbing Peter to pay Paul and you're eating like, like, who's Peter and Paul? Right, right. Yeah. So, okay. Where can people keep up with your journey on social media? <laughs> um, I'm horrible with social media. Facebook. Don't ask me my name on Facebook. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> you don't have to. I don't have to have this question. If you don't want people to follow you and shit, I don't have to put. You know, <laughs> I have Instagram, and I don't. I need to start because I'm also a photographer. I'm just really bad with social media. Oh, wow. Shout out to our Patreon members for your support. If you too are interested in joining the Black Bras Abroad movement, you can follow us on social media, and that's B L A C K. B-R-O-A-D-S. That's on Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to become a supporter on Patreon, you can do so on patreon.com backslash Black Broads Abroad.